If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We are getting close to the end of our prolonged study of Matthew. I think we're three years in and we're getting near the end. Near the end. And by way of announcing, we will be, if you want to start reading ahead, we will be taking up the book of Deuteronomy after we are done our series in Matthew. But today we will be focusing on Matthew chapter 27, verses 15 to 26. Matthew chapter 27, verses 15, actually, verse 11 to 26. If you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now Jesus, in verse 11, stood before the governor. The governor in question is a man named Pontius Pilate a name recorded in the historic Christian creeds as the one who crucified Jesus. The Apostles' Creed, for example, reads like this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. Again, in the Nicene Creed, we read, For our sake Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. As we noted last week, history has not been kind to Judas. And this week we see history has not been kind to Pontius Pilate either. Judas is remembered for delivering Jesus over to the Jewish authorities, while Pilate is remembered for delivering Jesus, an innocent man, over to be crucified. 
And on this morning, after trying Jesus in the darkness of night, and after violating every single one of their very own laws, those present at the Jewish trial of Jesus pronounced the verdict in chapter 26, verse 66. He deserves death. And now, in order to secure that particular outcome, in order to lay hold of that verdict, in order to put Jesus to death, something that the Romans forbade them from doing, they bound Jesus and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor, as we read in chapter, verse 2 of chapter 27. And some might wonder why after declaring Jesus to be innocent numerous times, at least three times in this event, this trial before Barabbas, uh, before Pilate, Pilate will say, I find no guilt in the man. And yet he still decides to deliver Jesus over to be crucified. What could be going on in the background that would bring Pilate to make such a decision? Well, let's take a look. History remembers Pilate as a violent, cruel, and harsh man. Given to slaughtering vast numbers of people, he was a man who was not above taking bribes to pervert justice. He was not a man who was above robbing the Jewish temple. There are three major acts in Pontius Pilate's life that stand out in history. And as you As you hear these, understand that for Rome, what they expected from a governor was quite simple. In order to be a successful, respected governor within the Roman Empire, you had to achieve two things, and two things only. Peace and stability in your region, and regular remittance of tax dollars to Caesar. Those are the two things you had to keep as a a provincial governor. So when Pilate is installed as the governor of this area in about A.D. 26, one of the very first things he did was try to impress the emperor at the time. And to accomplish this end, Pilate brought a number of busts or sculptures or images of the chest and head of the current emperor into the city of Jerusalem. He wanted to set those images up across the city so that the people would have great respect for the emperor. Now, if you know anything about Israel, images are one of the top ten rules. Don't have any images. And other governors before Pilate had the good sense to consider the sensitivities of the Jewish populace and do whatever they could to avoid riots and mobs. And that's going to become important later on because that's the foundational reason that Pilate ultimately ends up giving Jesus over. He saw a riot forming. But in the beginning of his life as governor, he brought these these images in to a powder keg that was the Jewish nation. And he hated the Jews. He hated Jerusalem. He hated the constant upheavals in the region. And so he, by doing this, was attempting to assert his dominance over the region with these images of Caesar. And as the graven images were being made in, they made their way into the city, the people of Israel were bothered and angered and riled up by so blatant an act of idolatry within their midst. And they repeatedly cried out to Pilate to remove them from the holy city, and Pilate refused. And he brought in the military to control the situation and threatened to slaughter the entire populace in Jerusalem. If they continued their commotion, if they continued their campaigning, if they continued all this belly aching, he would kill them all, he said. And the inhabitants of the city called his bluff, and they all knelt down in the midst of the city as the Roman soldiers had their swords drawn, and they bore their necks to the soldiers and said, I'd rather die than have this idolatry committed. And Pilate was faced with a choice, slaughter them or relent. And he relented. Why? Because he did not want to be the cause of a major riot or upheaval in the city, given that what Rome really wants from a governor is peace and stability in the region. Pilate also, in a second act, 
stole money from the temple in Jerusalem in order to fund the building of an aqueduct in the city. And this actually did lead to a riot among the Jews, but on this occasion, Pilate didn't yield. But he instead sent his military, disguised as regular folk, plain clothes officers, with orders to kill and to slaughter those that were carrying out or involved in this disturbance. And while many of the rioters were indeed massacred on this day, so were numerous innocent spectators, people who weren't taking part in the riots at all, and this angered Rome. And in in between this and the next one is where the trial of Jesus takes place. But on this occasion, when these officers went around stabbing the people... So much blood was spilt in the region that the blood of the people ran down the same corridors that the blood from the sacrifices of the temple ran down. It's an event that is recorded or referenced in Luke chapter 13, verse 1, where we read this. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. It speaks to this particular event in Pilate's reign. And lastly, the act that brought about Pilate's ruin was his murdering of numerous Samaritans as they went up Mount Gerizim. Somebody told the Samaritans that there was a treasure trove of items that Moses himself had buried on Mount Gerizim. And so these Samaritans all went up hoping to dig and find these priceless artifacts But Pilate didn't like it, and so he sent up his military, and he killed every single one of them that were at the top of the mountain digging. And the Samaritans went and complained to the Roman authorities about this event. Pilate was then ordered back to Rome to stand trial for his actions. In that trial, he was stripped of his position and banished to an island called Gaul, where he was disgraced beyond repair. And the church historian Eusebius tells us that Pilate ultimately ended up, like Judas, committing suicide. During his reign or rule, Pilate was known to treat people terribly. He repeatedly executed supposed criminals without so much as a trial. And that makes this particular trial of Jesus stand out. Because it's quite out of character for this man to repeatedly attempt to set Jesus free before he caved to the pressure of the crowd. So here, as Jesus is standing before the governor, John tells us that this interaction between Christ and Pilate took place in Pilate's headquarters, away from the ears of the religious leaders who refused to enter these headquarters because Pilate was a Gentile and they didn't want to be defiled by anything Uh, Gentile, and then in so doing be disqualified from taking part in the Passover. So they stand on the outside of the headquarters. Jesus is in the room inside the headquarters, and they started accusing Jesus to Pilate, who is standing on the balcony in between Jesus and the crowds. And in Luke 23, verse 2, we see them saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Do you see the irony here? The irony is this. The charge that they bring against Jesus is the very type of Messiah that they're so desperately seeking. And they say all of these things in accusing Jesus, not because he's actually done them, but because he hasn't done them. If Jesus were a man who was forbidding them to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he's the king and actually leading them in some sort of military charge, they would never have brought Jesus to this point. They would never have treated him like they're treating him. And so in response to this question, Pilate asks Jesus, as we see in our text in verse 11, are you the king of the Jews? Hear the sarcastic tone in Pilate's voice as he considers what his eyes see standing before him. What does Pilate see standing before him? He sees a man bound by the very people who are accusing him of being a king and a rival to Caesar. He sees a man whose face is bruised because it's been struck and slapped by those who have led Jesus to him. 
He sees with his own eyes a man who probably still has the spittle of the Jewish mockers dangling from his beard. Are you the king of the Jews? As Pilate asks this question, what he means is, are you some, really some sort of dangerous revolutionary? That's what these men are accusing you of being. Are you really campaigning and leading a charge to overthrow Caesar? And Jesus answers the question of his kingship in the affirmative. It says in, Matthew's, or in Matthew here, in verse 11, you have said so. Or as the New American Standard would translate it, it is as you say. And John reveals more of the conversation because Jesus clarifies in John's gospel what it meant at this moment for him to say, yes, I am the king of the Jews. See what John wrote in verses, chapter 18, verses 35 to 38. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in this man. See, Pilate had wondered if Christ was attempting to lead some sort of rebellion to establish some sort of physical kingdom at that time to compete with and perhaps overthrow Rome. And what Jesus revealed to him is that at that time, the kingdom over which Jesus is ruling is no geographical kingdom, nor is it political in any sense that ought to strike fear in Pilate. It doesn't compete with Rome for tax dollars. It's not competing for, with Rome for plots of land. It is not enlisting or training up any sort of army or militia to fight. If this were the sort of kingdom, Jesus said, that he had come to establish during his first sojourn on the earth, Pilate would already have a rebellion on his hands because Christ's servants would have already taken up arms to fight against him. They had tried to do so in times past. If you remember, when Jesus performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000, the crowds attempted in that moment to take Jesus and make him king by force. And Jesus at that moment, had he accepted, would have had a ready-made militia of at least 5,000 men to fight for him. But Jesus refused to take that earthly crown because at his first coming, it wasn't about any of that. His first coming, Jesus had come to bear witness to the truth, to seek and to save the lost, to call the lost sheep of the house of Israel to repent and return to the Lord. He came to deliver all of us who would believe in his name from the power and the penalty of sin. And he would do so by bearing the, that penalty in our place when he, by going to the cross. So here is a solitary man standing in front of Pilate with no earthly army behind him. Although we do know, based on what he said to the disciples in the garden, that 12 legions of angels stand at the ready. Here is a solitary man standing in front of Pilate who tells Pilate, my aim is to bear witness to the truth and those who love truth listen to my voice. Those who do not love truth will not listen to my voice by turning to me in faith and repentance and obeying my commands. And after hearing Jesus explain all of this, Pilate said, I find no guilt in him, meaning he's not the revolutionary that you guys are saying that he is. That was his first attempt to release Jesus. 
something he would say, like I said, two more times in John chapter 19, verse 4 and 19, verse 6. I find no guilt in this man. This interaction between Jesus and Pilate, the Apostle Paul would later call in 1 Timothy 6.13, the good confession. Jesus, standing before Pilate, said, If you love truth, listen to my voice. I am the king of a kingdom where truth is the rule. A kingdom that people enter into by believing the truth. I am the truth. I bear witness to the truth. But Pilate, who is a man who does not love truth, he deflects, right? You see that in John. What is truth? Instead of looking to Jesus and saying, what truth? Tell me, I need to know. I want to be a man of truth myself. He obscures. He confuses. He tries to keep the definition of truth unclarified, which is the practice of everyone who hates the truth. And so in 1 Timothy 16, Paul tells us, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pilate made the good confession. As he stood before the Roman governor, I bear witness to the truth. Believe the truth. Now notice in our text that while Jesus did indeed answer the question posed to him by Pilate, once again, as the Jewish leaders level accusations at him, he remains silent. As the accusations keep piling up, we read in verse 12, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Accusation after accusation, ranging from things like, in Luke 23, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. As we see in John's gospel, they just made general claims like this, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. I don't know if that would hang, stand up in a court of law. They accused him of social disturbances. He stirs up the people. They, gave, they set religious charges against him. In John 19, 7, we, the, the Jews answered saying, we have a law and according to that law, this man ought to die because he has made himself to be the son of God. And then they also leveled political charges against him like sedition against Rome. They were trying everything. They were trying anything they could. They were coming quick, and they were hitting on everything as they rabidly sought to see some charge, any charge, stick. They were trying to secure their intended goal of seeing Jesus executed, and surprisingly, Jesus gave no answer. He did not feel the need to defend himself, not even against a single one of their charges. It's obvious here, right, that Jesus is not trying to avoid the cross. He's making no effort to clear up, clear himself of the accusations that are being leveled against him. Why? Because Jesus had come to do the Father's will. And the Father's will was to crush him in order to save all who believe in his name as Lord and Savior. But on an earthly level, the the silence of Jesus is really surprising to Pilate, who said in verse 13, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? They're making many and serious accusations. They are trying to paint you as a criminal. Do you have nothing to say in your own defense? Will you make no effort at all to preserve or to vindicate yourself? Again, Jesus knows and he trusts the Father's will. And listen, this is one of the great keys to contentment in this life for you. To look at Jesus, a man so content, a man who trusts his Father's goodwill and providence to such a degree that he does not feel the need to defend himself when accusations are come up against him because he trusts that God has got, his Father has got all of this under control. Jesus knows I will be vindicated by my Father. 
Jesus knows that when he is raised from the grave and he is seated at the right hand of power, he knows that he will be given all authority in heaven and on earth. He knows that the Lord will highly exalt him and bestow upon him the name that is above every other name so that, as we read in Philippians, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus knows that the outcome of his obedience to the Father will be that vindication and also, if you are saved this morning, he knows that the outcome of his obedience will be your salvation. And because he rests secure in the perfect will and in the perfect plan of his Father, he doesn't need to speak for himself. He can be like David, still, and trusting in his Father's name. See, Jesus is a a most excellent example to each and every one of us here because no doubt you and I have been in a place of desperation in our own lives at some point. And you know, and I know, what we can plummet to in order to free ourselves from the pain of a trial or the difficulty, some difficulty that might come upon us. We might turn to some fanaticism, to complaining, to disputing, to murmuring, to anger, to attempts to escape, to lies, to slander, to self-protection that lays others low. We can turn to a whole host of things in order to free ourselves from our difficulties, all of which reveals in us a lack of trust in our Father who is our shield and our very present help in times of trouble. This is something Scripture reminds us of over and over and over again. Be silent and trust the Lord. One of the great examples is Israel on the shores of the Red Sea as the Egyptian army is quickly approaching to re-enslave them. Israel has no weapons. They have no path to escape. There is no way out. They could have tried to complain and murmur and attempt to escape, but nothing would have secured them. The only thing that would save them is the Father acting on their behalf. And we read in Exodus 14, God comforting the nation with these words as the dust from the Egyptian army rises up behind them and they press forward. We read in Exodus 14, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to, and listen to it, be silent. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And here we have Jesus on this day, silent perfectly content to leave his situation in the hands of the Father. And so Jesus remains meek and gentle and humble and silent in the face of all this pressure, all these accusations, and all these charges. He is so content with his Father's fighting for him that he did not answer to even a single charge. Truly a man who is unafraid. Truly a man who stands firm and waits for the salvation that his Father is going to work out for us this day. And this composure, this lack of fear, this lack of anxiety that is exhibited by Jesus here as he stands before Pilate, the confidence, the peace, the untouchability of this man amazed Pilate. I mean, no doubt Pilate had never seen a prisoner like this. No doubt everyone who has come before him before had loads of excuses and loads of justifications. There is no doubt in my mind that Pilate is very much like a police officer who has pulled people over for speeding. He has heard every single justification for speeding known to humankind... 
No doubt Pilate had heard every single excuse and justification for criminal activity. He'd come to expect a certain degree of desperation from those accused, but in Christ he saw absolutely none, no desperation. Jesus was truly an untouchable man because he was so confident in his Father's good will and oversight. This is something that the Apostle Paul learned from Jesus, right? Everywhere you see Paul go, somebody is trying to do something terrible to him. Somebody is trying to flog him, arrest him, murder him, and in every single situation, he is untouchable because he trusts God so much. Paul, we're going to kill you, all right, to die is gain. You know what, Paul? Scratch that. We're going to let you live to live as Christ. You know what, Paul? We're going to toss you in a prison cell. It's okay. I'll sing hymns with your prisoners, convert them and your guards. Untouchable. Because he trusted the will of the Father in every single situation and circumstance he found himself in. What a way to live, right? In Jesus, Pilate saw a man who had entrusted himself to the God who does all things right. And for some reason, Pilate did not want to hand this man over to be put to death. And he heard, as the crowds were accusing him in this moment, according to Luke, that Jesus was a Galilean. And so Pilate actually tried to escape the whole thing by sending Jesus to Herod in hopes that Herod would figure it out. That's where we get Herod, this sending to Herod in Luke 23. There, in Luke chapter 23, we read in verses 6 to 12. When Pilate heard this, he asked if Jesus was a Galilean. And when he learned that he, Jesus, belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him. So Herod questioned Jesus at some length. But Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by. So see, they followed him to wherever Herod was, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. So Jesus is once again questioned, but this time by another Roman authority. And while they mocked him and treated him with contempt, they did not, Herod, along with Pilate, found no guilty guilt in him. And so Pilate, or, uh, Pilate in Luke 23 tells the crowds, I will therefore punish him and release him. So here's Pilate again, trying to set Jesus free. It's, it should shock you how many times Pilate actually tries to set Jesus free. But the crowds are angry and opposed to Pilate's decision. So once again, Pilate utilizes another provision in his attempts to set Jesus free. Now he brings before them the criminal Barabbas and has them choose between the two. You read it in verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. See, Pilate hoped to use this custom to set Jesus free, to release and to pardon Jesus. And so he brought out for them a particularly noteworthy criminal. You see the phrase, they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now this man is one of the only men outside of the Pilate and the disciples and Jesus himself who is mentioned by name in every single one of the Gospels. And we don't know much about this man except what is mentioned in the short descriptions of him in each of the Gospels. Luke tells us, for example, twice 
that Barabbas was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Mark tells it to us like this in chapter 15, verse 7. Among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And John describes it like this. This man, Barabbas, was a robber. So the picture of Barabbas, then, is that of a man leading and or involved in an insurrection against Rome, a murderer, a rebel, and a robber. Barabbas is a convicted criminal, a real prisoner. And if you think about it, he probably was the man for whom one of the three crosses had been raised up for on that day. This man has committed the crimes he is being charged with. And he therefore deserves the punishments that are coming to him. But Jesus, what has he done? Besides showing mercy and compassion, what crime has Jesus committed unless one would call healing the sick or the performing of great signs and wonders and miracles, the opening of the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, the mouths of the mute, unless bearing witness to the truth can be considered a crime, or maybe raising little girls from the dead and giving them back to their fathers, or maybe promoting life any of these, are any of these worthy of condemnation? But the crowds, they don't want the man who tells us that we must love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. They want the man who kills them. They want the man who fights for Jewish independence and liberty from Rome, who carries a knife and stabs people and murders them. Barabbas is called a notorious prisoner here. Some of your translations might actually use words like well-known, prominent, notable, or famous. That's the idea of this word. To Rome, Barabbas would have indeed been a notorious figure. But to the Jews, Barabbas would have been a well-respected, prominent, and much-loved figure. This thug of a man is exactly the type of man that Israel wanted. Barabbas was for them more uh, aligned with their messianic expectations and the popular ideas of what a Messiah should be and do when he arrives on the scene than Jesus, who is actually the Messiah, is for them. See, Jesus never attempted to overthrow governments, but Barabbas did. Jesus refused to utilize the earthly weapons of war to establish his kingdom, which caused the stumbling of all of his disciples the night before, while Barabbas murdered the Romans with the swords that Jesus told his followers to sheathe. Barabbas is a man that many in Israel would have found it easy to get behind. He was to them and for them a patriot. He was a man who fought the good fight, and people always find it easier to line up behind men like Barabbas who lash out and eliminate those they deem to be obstacles in their fight. They find Barabbas an easier figure to rally around than they find Jesus. One calls to violent response. One calls his people to meekness, to the praying for those who persecute you, to the remaining as innocent as doves, to putting the sword away and taking up the sword of the Spirit, to being men and women of grace and truth like Jesus rather than violent rebels like Barabbas. Barabbas was a freedom fighter for Israel. He fought to redeem his nation by the earthly means that Jesus said no to. And he found himself bound and imprisoned in a cell for it. Most likely he had been waiting for a few days for the, date of, for the time of his execution to come. This man has no business being remembered. This man has no business having his name recorded in all four Gospels, and yet his name is recorded in all four Gospels. And the question I would ask is, why? Why is Barabbas remembered so clearly? I believe it is because Barabbas is a picture of the grace of Christ. Barabbas is a picture 
of what Jesus is about to accomplish for all who believe in his name on the cross. Now, we don't know what becomes of Barabbas, but the symbolism of what is about to occur is clear. Barabbas here is the first of those unworthy criminals and rebels against the Lord for whom Christ will take his place. Barabbas is a picture of substitution. Look at it. Whose chains are loosed on this day? Whose shackles remain fixed and unlocked on this day? The shackles that Barabbas had are set loose even as the ropes that are binding Jesus remain fixed. It's Barabbas who is pardoned and acquitted of his heinous crimes. It is him who goes free while Jesus takes his place on this very day, most likely on the very cross that had been reserved for Barabbas. Barabbas is the one who is now free, and he makes his way through the crowds as they no doubt all patted him on the back. Way to go, Barabbas. Keep it up, Barabbas. And Jesus stands there, beaten and mocked, spit on and bound and cuffed. If you think about the gospel picture that is presented here, if you were to put yourself in any one of these characters in this historical event, guess who we are? You are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. Barabbas is the picture of what Jesus has done for you if you believe in his name. The wicked, rightfully condemned man is set free as Jesus takes his place. As Jesus is crucified on the very cross set up to execute him. Jesus stood silent. Jesus endured the shame, the accusations, the mockery, the humiliation, the scourging, the lies, and the puffed up chests of all those who think they are powerful because they have it in their power to kill the body. Jesus took it all and Barabbas goes free. The cross that Jesus is about to be fastened to, where he will bear in himself the wrath of the Father, will be the very instrument by which every single Barabbas is set free. Every single Barabbas who cries out to Jesus in faith will be set free. We will be set free in a way that is even greater than Barabbas' physical liberty on this day we will be set free from the wages of sin. So as the crowds gather, Pilate said to them in verse 17, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? Notice, he doesn't give any sort of extra description of Barabbas, but he does give a description of Jesus, perhaps maybe hoping this is the Christ, this is who you guys, this is who, he's come as and, and claimed to be the king of the Jews. Maybe, maybe. Because it would seem that there are crowds swelling, and this has provided Pilate with an opportunity because if you are Pilate, think to yourself, when Jesus entered the city just a few days earlier, the crowds were throwing down palm branches and hailing this man, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Perhaps in Pilate's mind, he thinks there is some difference, there's some disconnect between the response of the crowds toward Jesus and the response of the religious leaders. Because Pilate knew, verse 18, that it was out of envy that they, the religious leaders, had delivered him up. Their true motivations had not escaped Pilate's notice. And so as he brings the two men out and yells to them, Who do you want? Barabbas, the one who has actually committed the crimes that he is accused of? Which are, by the way, the very crimes you accuse Jesus of having committed. Surely you could not be so hypocritical as to say that this Jesus is speaking treasonous words against Rome and then cry out for the one who's actually been convicted of those very crimes. Can you? They have to let Jesus go, right? No. See the degree to which their envy has driven them. They have become so completely deranged 
that they can see no problem with their response. But before the crowd could answer, before the crowd could answer him, while Pilate, verse 19, was sitting on the judgment seat, meaning the seat of the judge, the place where it was supposed that just judgments would be rendered, verse 19 tells us that his wife sent word to Pilate. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him in a dream. So this section of the Roman trial of Jesus is unique to Matthew. Pilate's wife had a dream, and that dream was so startling to her, and the emotions that she experienced as a result of that dream, the emotional, the mental, the anguish, and the suffering she'd endured because of this righteous man were so painful that when she woke, she did something unexpected and uncommon. She sent word to her husband, interrupting him as he carried out his official duties as Roman governor. That didn't happen. What must she have seen in the dream? We're not told exactly what it was, but we know that the result of her dream was her declaration that this Jesus is a righteous man. Have nothing to do with him. Let him go free. But as Pilate is receiving this message from his wife, verse 20, the chief priests and the elders are out persuading the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The spiritual leaders of the people went out and induced and persuaded the crowds, the very crowds they're supposed to shepherd, the very crowds they're supposed to protect, they went out and persuaded them to commit evil deeds. And many who consider themselves leaders of Christ's people would do well to heed what is warned about here in this text. Never is an under-shepherd to hold Jesus up to contempt by leading and persuading the people of God to walk in paths of disobedience. And as it was for this generation who will pay dearly for their wickedness, so it will be for such profane leaders throughout the generations who tell their people to do those things. The priests and the elders here, they persuaded the crowd, meaning they went through the crowds appealing and convincing them. They were riling them up and exciting their inclination to release Barabbas and destroy Jesus, which probably wasn't all that difficult because they liked Barabbas. They don't mind standing behind a patriot like him. And after the resurrection of Jesus, as Peter preached to the people at Solomon's portico in Acts chapter 3, he reminds them of this very wicked act telling them, you denied the holy and righteous one and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And it was at this moment that John tells us Pilate once again attempted to release Jesus. This time, he tried to meet them kind of halfway. In chapter 19, verses 1 to 3 of John's gospel, it says, he took Jesus and flogged him And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. And then Pilate brings this man out in full view of the crowds and the religious leaders. And in John 19, verse 4 says, while Jesus is wearing the crowns and the purple robe, he said to the crowds, Behold the man. Look at this man. Obviously believing that the the sight of so pathetic a figure would surely satisfy them and he'd be able to set him free. And as Jesus stood there with the crown of thorns and the purple robes of mockery so visible to the crowds in uh, Matthew Our text in verse 21, the governor again said to them, while they're looking at him, at Jesus, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Luke tells us that they actually said, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. The religious leaders and the crowds, they had multiple chances to make the right decision. And every time, they chose the condemnation of an innocent man. Pilate then, perhaps recognizing that if the crowds won't choose 
to set Jesus free, at this moment, perhaps they might choose some punishment that would satisfy them. Maybe he could flog Jesus some more. Maybe he could shame and humiliate Jesus more. There has to be some, something short of execution that I could do that might quench your, this mob who is so set on killing Jesus. So he asks again in verse 22, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And this is intentional. Don't overlook this statement. It is intentional. The religious leaders are trying to do something very specific here. They do not want to create in Jesus some martyr by killing him in any old way. They specify crucifixion because they, as students of the Old Testament, know what Deuteronomy says about such a death. Deuteronomy chapter 21 Verses 22 to 23, we read this. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, crucifixion, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, listen to this, for a hanged man is cursed by God. They want everybody to remember that Jesus is a one who is cursed by God. They want every single time the name of Jesus is brought up in polite conversation or as they remember this man who walked around Jerusalem and healed people, they want cursed associated with his name. So they demand that he be hanged on the tree. They demand that he be crucified. But little did they know, right? Little did they know that what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Because as the Apostle Paul would later write to the Galatian believers in Galatians 3, 13 and 14, he says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And to all who do receive the promised spirit by faith, none will, none can, none will ever say, as we read in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that Jesus is accursed. That's what they wanted. Because we know that the cross of Christ, we know that his being hanged on a tree, we know that his becoming a curse for us is the very thing that redeems us and saves us. So instead of thinking that Jesus is a cursed man, the very opposite of what they were intending happened. And if you are saved by grace through faith in his name this morning, you don't say Jesus, the cursed man. You say Jesus, Lord and Savior. Jesus did not become a curse for anything he did, which is what indicates that a person is cursed. Deuteronomy begins by saying this, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, which means Jesus hadn't. No, Jesus became a curse because of our sin, because of our unrighteousness, because of our rebellion, and in so doing, he paid the penalty for every sin committed by every single believer. The evil desire of these religious leaders ended up backfiring. But Pilate, unaware of these things, responded to the evil request of the crowds in verse 23 by saying, Why? What evil has he done? That's a perfectly reasonable question. To which the rabid response of the crowd very much sounds like certain groups who today, instead of answering questions, simply shout them down. What evil has Jesus done? The answer, they all knew it, was absolutely nothing. But they won't let something as inconsequential to them as the facts get in the way of their intentions. Even though Jesus is the one described by Isaiah, the one who had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, even though that is the reality, verse 23 says, they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. See, we sometimes like to think that we live in times such as never before were. But people have always been the same. 
Those who are bent on evil have always used mobs and crazy shrieks and screams and shouts to insist on their way without any proof or solid, solid argumentation. You can see that out in our world today. And so as Pilate tries to get the information out, all he is met with is shouting all the more. Shouting for Christ's crucifixion even though there was no legal basis or legal proof for their accusations. The people chose Barabbas over Christ, the murderous sinner over the glorious Savior, which is yet another picture of the state of mankind because humanity left to itself will always choose its destructive and evil sin over the redemption that is offered to them in Christ. And humanity, as we bear witness to it, will shriek and scream and shout as we try to point them to the Lord. And when we try again, they do so all the more. But that is our witness, that is our goal, that is our mission here, to continue bearing witness to Christ, confident in his saving power. Because as we will read in Acts, as you read in Acts, Jesus will actually go on to save many of those who are here involved in that very shout of crucify him. What a glorious and compassionate Savior we serve. If anyone... If you'd think anyone could not be forgiven, it would be those who lifted up their voice for the second time and said, let him be crucified. But when Peter preached at Pentecost and told them, you killed him, their hearts were cut and many of them were saved on that day because Jesus is much more compassionate, much more gracious than you could ever imagine. But as the crowds shouted all the more, and we see in verse 24, Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. See, Pilate saw that there was no reasoning with this crowd. There was no amount of contradictory evidence that would change their mind. And they were preparing themselves to riot. Do you hear that? That's key. They were preparing themselves to riot. And where we started was by telling you that Rome wanted two things from their governor. Peace and stability in the region, tax dollars. Pilate had already had two strikes against him in the robbing of the temple and in the setting up of the images of the emperor. So Pilate cannot afford at this moment another misstep. So instead of allowing a riot to form, he protected himself. In verse 24, it says, He took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Luke said, The voices of the people prevailed. In other words, Pilate here is saying, I don't think this man is guilty of the charges brought against him, and I will not accept any of the guilt that is against him, or that you are bringing against him. This is all on you. And the response of the crowd forms some of the most devastating words in the entirety of our Bible. Some of the most awful, wicked, villainous, heinous words in all of Scripture. When the nation that God had chosen to be his special possession, the physical offspring of Abraham, Abraham his nation of priests, answered Pilate in verse 25, his blood be on us and our children. This generation of Israelites, so uniquely wicked, took and accepted the responsibility for the crucifixion and rejection of Jesus, but they were so rabid in this moment that they were even willing to implicate their children in this reprehensible evil. See the inheritance that this generation left for their children, who would go on to face scourgings and crucifixions by the Romans in AD 65, and then again in AD 70 when General Titus destroyed the city. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that he crucified and killed so many people that there was not enough space in the city to put all the crosses that hung people. In fact, they ran out of crosses upon which to hang people. They couldn't see that. They couldn't see what they had just implicated their children in. And on this day, Pilate did what the crowd wanted. In verse 26, he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. 
Think about that whole scenario. No self-defense on Jesus' part. No crimes committed by Jesus. All accusations brought against him were nothing more than lies. Why allow all of this? Why would Jesus continue to walk this path of humiliation and mockery? It's because, as he said earlier, to the glory of his Father in heaven and to yours and my great benefit, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. If you are a believer in here this morning, he has come and he has sought you and he has saved you. If you are not a believer here this morning, he came to seek you and to save you. And the call goes out to you. Believe in his name and you can be forgiven and you will have eternal life with him. The great joy of our souls. If you have turned to Christ in faith this morning, he did all of this for you. And all praise to his glorious name. If you are not a believer this morning, he did this and now offers you forgiveness and eternal life. And our prayer as a church of believers in the name of the Lord Jesus is this, that you would call out to him in faith and repentance and be saved. Father, we thank you for everything Christ went through and everything he has accomplished for us. Lord, I ask that you would use this text to comfort your children here this morning, to help us to see the model that we have in Christ, to be content in, the, in your will, to trust you, to ourselves be untouchable because we know we are in your hands. I pray that we would also see the wonderful picture of substitution that we, like Barabbas, go free because Jesus took our place. And I pray that all glory would go to you. I pray for those who may not be faithful, faithfully following you, who may not be saved this morning, that you would be pounding on their hearts, pounding on their souls, and bringing them to a place where they want nothing more than to be a part of your family adopted into your family, a precious son or a daughter to whom the most glorious of inheritances are given. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.